0: I once was in a deal. We lost money where it was a, you know, okay company, okay management team, okay prospects, but great price, great structure. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out too well. And I learned a really important lesson that so many folks hone in on price and valuation and the structure of a deal. And they think they got a great deal. When in fact, it's all about the people. It's all about, you know, the goodness of a business and what it can become. And I paid a huge price.
1: Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates.
2: And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Naz and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership.
1: In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders.
2: Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership?
1: Perhaps the boldest question yet.
2: Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So today we're talking with a global leader in the world of private equity. Now, the PE industry, much like many others today, has been through quite a lot of change and it continues to be redefined due to technology as well as social and global issues. So I'm really looking forward to hearing our guests' perspective on how the industry has changed. Clark, you know our guest well. He is a true veteran of the PE world, having been in the industry for more than three decades. And today he leads one of the biggest large cap PE firms in the world. I'm, of course, intrigued to hear his perspective, not only on how the PE world has changed and what the future holds, but I'm actually really keen to hear about maybe some of the mistakes that he's made and the lessons that he's learned from them.
2: Yeah, you take over from kind of iconic founders is one set of challenges for anyone in any business. But the multi-asset class nature of private equity now, you've got to have a private credit business, you've got to have a good real estate business, you've got to have a buyout business, you want to be in the growth equity business. So strategically, he's also got to make and has made some big decisions about where to make the bets while yet establishing himself as a chief executive. So he's a multifaceted guy that I think is going to be a really interesting conversation.
1: So tell us who our guest is, Clark.
2: Our guest today is Q Song Lee, better known as Q the CEO of the Carlisle Group. He joined Carlisle in 2013, became co-CEO in 2018, was also elected to the board. He's been the sole CEO since 2020. Carlisle has 26 offices across five continents, and they manage over $290 billion in assets. He's also the president of the Lincoln Center Theater in New York City, chamber of the US Chamber of Commerce Center for China Advisory, and the vice chair for the Partnership for New York City. So
0: Q, welcome. Hi Clark, hi Nanaz.
1: Thank you for joining us, hello.
0: I'm happy to be here.
1: So Q, um, as I said, would love to start with a question about you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into private equity and was it something that you were interested in at a young age? I have to tell you when I did my MBA in 2007, I was probably one of a handful of people that didn't wanna get into PE. It was very much kind of the pinnacle of success is if you managed to graduate with a PE job in hand. Was it an aspiration for you as well?
0: Well, listen, to tell you the truth, I I didn't imagine as a young kid, hey, when I grow up, I wanna be in the private equity business. Uh, In fact, I didn't really know much about this industry or business, and it was a random occurrence as to how I got into the business. I was riding a bus with my then fiance and a fellow friend jumped on the bus who I hadn't seen in a while. Turns out he worked at a firm called Warburg Pincus and he was transferring to their London office and he looked at me and we have known each other because we had worked together at Goldman and we had gone to college together and he said, you know, you'd be great at this firm. And I, I had no idea what this firm was. I didn't really know what the business was about. Next thing I know, Monday morning, I get a call. And that started a process of getting to know, getting to uh, understand better what Warburg was. And six months later, I joined. And it was just a random occurrence really that I got into the private equity industry.
1: And then why have you stayed for as long as you have? Because it is, I said, it's over 30 years if I'm not mistaken, right?
0: Yeah, no, look, it's a great business for someone like me. You have to think strategically. You have to put your money where your mouth is. There's an opportunity to create change and work side-by-side with CEOs and management teams to help grow businesses. And it really tests your skill set. It's mm-hmm. everything from the financial side, but then knowing how to work effectively at boards. It's knowing how to influence people and work well with partners. You have to go out and, and raise money and make the case to third-party, very sophisticated investors. So it's a very... Uh, Fun job with, at least for me, a lot of intellectual satisfaction in terms of the types of things and the issues we're looking at, but also um, the ability to create Mm. and build and grow and help teams make their companies better over time. You've seen so much change happen in
2: the industry, and you've had to adapt to those changes in your own career. Is there
0: any redefining moment for you? Yeah, you know, Clark, I think there was. I was really happy and, and having a lot of fun doing deals at Warbrook Pincus and the Carlyle opportunity came along. And I remember debating this with my wife and family at the dinner table. Uh, and, and this debate was going on for a few weeks, the pros and the cons and you know very different firms, very different size and complexity and pros and cons. And, and finally, my uh, daughter slammed her fist on the table and said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about this dad. Go big or go home, <laughs> and uh, that was a that was a defining moment in the sense that you know I thought about it and I said you know, it, it's time for me to try something different. Which is rather than being good uh, at the deal doing business, really this shift for me was now how do I be really good at the business of doing deals because yeah. of the firm and the platform and the size and the scale of Carlisle versus the private firm that I was at. And so it was actually a fun moment when, as I look back, she she was absolutely right. You know, Dad, stop debating the pros and the cons. Either go big or go home. Um, And uh, here here we are.
1: Q, how old was she? Did she know the advice that she was giving?
0: (laughs) She was in high school at the time. I think she was a sophomore, maybe a freshman, but she captured it perfectly after patiently listening for a week or two.
1: Look, so the industry obviously has changed a lot from the days of leveraged buyouts to today where, you know, their PE firms are multi-asset class managers. Why has the industry changed? And what would be your prediction about how it continues to evolve?
0: Sure. Well, things change and grow if there's a value add and a need. And let's just take a step back and think about private markets and the role of private capital. And, And in my mind, I guess the punchline is it is a superior model. You know, first, we have an ability to think very long term. Second, there's real alignment in terms of management teams and the capital. And then finally, we have an ability to influence and control the outcome. We are not passive. We are not just sitting there going along for the ride. We are actively involved in working with companies to to make them better. When you put those three things together, it enables us to perform. Our asset class, relatively speaking, has outperformed public markets, no matter how you measure it, over a long period of time. And that's why I think you're seeing companies wanting to stay private for longer. That's why I think you're seeing entrepreneurs wanting to come to private capital firms like us to say, how can we partner together and get not only the money, but also all of your help? In terms of supply chains and bring us to new markets and how to think about digital and data so
2: when you look at the amount of capital private capital in the world today and the fundraising still going on there most probably will be more privately controlled companies than publicly held companies in the not too distant future what does that mean and and I think of private equity managers and board members as moving at a faster pace often than public company boards. What do you think that means for performance of companies and the role of public company governors uh, who often worry more about regulatory environment because they're public than the privately held companies do? Where does this go in terms of
0: governance? I'd flip the question around, Clark. I think there's a responsibility on behalf of the private Capital firms, the private market firms, to understand that they're a very large and important and a growing force in the global economy. And with that comes responsibility. We have to be thinking about best practices in ESG. We have to be thinking about accepting the responsibility to appreciate that we have a whole bunch of stakeholders. In addition to our limited partners, uh, like I said, it's not about just doing deals anymore. It is about the entire business uh, and the entire institutionalization that's occurring in our industry. But with that also comes important responsibilities that I think the leaders of our industry are up for assuming that and then communicating that, the narrative about what we do and how we do it over the long term. I think there's got to be a lot better messaging and narrative in terms of what we do. But I think given our growth and given all the different areas that we're in, there comes a responsibility from that Mm -hmm. growth, which uh, obviously I'm up for that challenge, as is Carla. So let me play devil's advocate. Sure. So the institutional shareholders,
2: pension funds, state funds, sovereign wealth funds, invest for the long term of their pensions or endowments with you. I agree the communication, Private equity, private capital is not always understood because the cynics say you think long term, but you have to sell the company for those investors to come back and invest again. Do you really think long term? So you have these long term asset investors, but you've got to sell a company typically in four to eight years. Talk about the short and the long term of performance in a five year cycle or an eight year cycle versus the investor who's investing
0: for 30 to 50 years. It's a great issue because 10 years ago, five years was long-term, but now long-term is 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So uh, a couple thoughts on this. First, we can't exit companies or sell companies unless they're positioned for the next five years, or else that next buyer isn't gonna come in and, and pay you a good price for for what you're selling. So I would argue, our timeframe is actually longer than just our exit period because we need to be positioning and planning and creating a plan that is sellable, marketable to the next buyer. Number two, you're actually seeing new strategies emerge, Clark, to take into account that longer duration. So, new funds are being created that are explicitly long duration funds where you don't have to sell in five years. Capital is now coming in saying, you know, guess what? This is a a 20 year fund, not a five to 10 year fund. We have now permanent sources of capital that are being raised where the capital stays in the fund and continues to be reinvested as opposed to liquefying everything in a five to eight year timeframe and and, and disperse the the capital back. So we
2: have a challenge of the short and the long term, which you're addressing with some of the permanent capital funds. But equally, Carlyle was a private partnership for such a long time, went public with your predecessors, which brings different pressures a public company, which you alluded to. But you're also the chief executive following three kind of iconic founders. Talk about the cultural changes and the challenges you face in this role. It's a classic role to try and establish, but it's also a public company at the same time. Kind of a
0: double whammy. Yeah, and, you know, you put your finger on it. Then that word is change. And I think the hardest thing, but the most fun and the most enduring thing that's going to happen at Carlisle is the change of culture that, that is occurring. You know, change is unsettling for lots of folks in, in organizations, and organizations. And I keep saying you may not like change, but you're going to like obsolescence even less. And in a world where the velocity of decision making and disruption and uh, the different forces coming at us so quickly. And by the way, it's not just our industry or, or our firm. It's, it's every industry and company. I think CEOs and leaders have to do a good job of preparing, conditioning and helping their organizations and their cultures evolve, change, adapt and To an extent, despite the terrible period of time that COVID started, and it's going to continue for a while, it also was an environment where you could get lots of changes and lots of things done, right? So, Clark, this is a long-winded way of me saying investment firms, the lifeblood of what we do is always to have a rejuvenated sense for the future, uh, to understand where are the changes, where are the risks, but where are the opportunities? There's more to do. But my motto is, think bigger, move faster, perform better. And no doubt, it's taking hold and real great traction at the firm.
1: All those things that you mentioned, Q, move faster, perform better, be used to change. P is, is high stakes, it's fast-paced, it's, it's very competitive. Are there certain skills or traits that a person really needs to have or learn in order to not just survive, but excel? What are the skills that you think you have that have helped you get to the top?
0: So first of all, this is a judgment business. Mm-hmm. And we need people who've got great sense of judgment. This is not a black or white, the numbers will tell you what to do business. So the ability to appreciate the gray, have a tolerance for ambiguity, and then make great judgments is, is a really important skill set. I think this is a business where a person needs to have incredible center of gravity.
1: Okay. We're
0: getting pulled all over the place. And if a person doesn't have a strong center of gravity around ethics, around you know the latest fad or not the latest fad, and if he or she gets influenced by what is happening around them too much, I think that's an issue. You need a center of gravity. And then finally, this is a conviction business. It's not about going around and figuring out what other people think. Is this a popular decision, Rod? You need to have real conviction as to where you think something is going and then make, as you say, the big important decisions around it. So so I think it's about judgment, it's about having center of gravity and it's about having real conviction, maybe courage to be successful.
1: So then going back on that judgment theme, you've done a ton of deals over the years. Have you ever made the wrong call? Oh yeah. Have you ever felt like you look back and you've made a mistake and what have you learned from it? <laughs> we don't have that. This is only a 30 minute podcast. We don't have time for all those.
0: <laughs> lots of lots of bad decisions. Um, you know, it's funny, people ask me like, you know, what deals have you learned the most from? And it's never the deals that have worked out. It's the mm. deals that don't work out where I've learned the most from. And I'll tell you one important lesson for me early on and I see people make this is I once was in a deal, we lost money. Where it was a, you know, okay company, okay management team, okay prospects, but great price, great structure. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out too well. And I learned a really important lesson that so many folks hone in on price and valuation and the structure of a deal. And they think they got a great deal when in fact it's all about the people. It's all about, you know, the goodness of a business and what it can become. And I paid a huge price. Uh, And I Mm -hmm. learned that it's not about necessarily just price and structure. In fact, I would back and partner a great CEO, Mm -hmm. even if it was an incredibly high price, because great CEOs, uh, he or she will lead companies and will figure out ways to grow and drive profitability.
2: When you talk about communities, you're a member of the Business Roundtable. You were there when they talked about stakeholders versus shareholders. You also, and Carlisle, has been active in terms of sustainability and about communities. How do you think about corporate responsibility? Again, you're you're paid to perform. You talked about performance for your investors. Sure. How do you balance stakeholders and your investors or shareholders to do the right thing in the right ways?
0: Yeah, you know, Clark, even in the way you asked the question, there's a hint of this being a false choice to me. It's not an either or. It's not about, well, are you driving for financial return or are you driving for great ESG outcomes? The fact of the matter is, in order to perform well, Mm. you have to have a terrific ESG mindset. And it's more cultural, and it's not an either or. It's an and. And what I mean by that is, so when we make an investment into a company, we're doing everything we can to enable it to perform better, drive revenues, new markets, new products, improve costs. But our research has shown those with diverse boards, their earnings grow 12% faster than those portfolio companies without diverse boards. Why wouldn't we bring more diversity to that portfolio company? Because it shows there's been better performance. When you have an ESG mindset to look for more, for better supply chains, and when you have an ESG mindset, it enables you to recruit talent and keep talent because they like what the company is doing. When you think about raising financing where your cost of capital actually goes down, you can lower emissions targets, which we put in place at our portfolio companies. Why wouldn't you do that? It drives performance. It's not a topic, it's not a check the box, it's not a metric that we're trying to shoot for. It is a mindset and a cultural thing where it's integral to Mm. our approach to say, how do we partner with companies to make them better?
1: So Q, I love what you have said um, in my experience, at least, this is not how the majority of private equity firms think. How do you make the world of private equity get closer to where Carlisle is when it comes to ESG in that it's not a box ticking exercise, but a mindset? How did you get there and how do you encourage others to follow?
0: You know, hopefully by doing and leading with great results, uh, people will start to get it and start to follow and They're already calling us to say, what are you doing? And we're sharing best practices with them. I think folks have to appreciate you need a really good why.
1: Hmm.
0: Why are we doing this and why does it matter, Mm -hmm. right? Because without the authenticity of appreciating that very essential question, uh, why does this really even matter? I think leaders and organizations will find that their ability to really make changes in organizations and to make cultural change is going to be very difficult. So at Carlyle, the why is very simple. This is about investment performance. Hmm. If it is about investment performance, I need to make great judgments and decisions. Well, in order to make great judgments and decisions, I need the most diverse perspectives and different views around me so that we can really test our thinking in order to make great decisions and judgments. It's a part of what we do. It's the very essence of what we do, right? And so if you don't shape and create a culture of inclusion that accepts different points of view, that seeks out and wants there to be different points of view and real honest debate, all of this, all the progress you make in terms of the what and how won't matter. This concept of the private partnership and the
2: public company, you said briefly, the pandemic was also an opportunity to bring about change, to enact change. What are some of those changes and how do you see all the things you just talked about, inclusion, decision-making, these are apprentice ways to learn. You worked with some of the great investors, John Vogelstein and others, who taught you you were at the table So the table was half at home and half in the office and still being decided. How do you look at a post-pandemic apprenticeship business and the teaching of good investment questions, good board members, learning from mistakes? How do you think about that? We at Russell Reynolds, we're an apprenticeship business. We worry about this. This is our biggest challenge. How do you look at
0: it? We've been very focused on this. Our team has done a great job and we have embraced hybrid or a flexible work model. And no doubt, Clark, there is so much value of the in-person problem-solving, creativity, really understanding the nuance of how how somebody uh, has thought about a decision. And there's no replacing that, which is why we do have a requirement that you have to be physically in a work environment with your teams. But the flip side of this, and again, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's uh, you have to do both. Virtual meetings, if done the right way, can be incredibly inclusive and can flatten your organization and it can disintermediate layers that have only gotten in the way of clear decision-making, fast decision-making and creative decision-making. And so let me just give you an example. For us, we now have investment committee meetings that even in a post return back to office mode, we're thinking very hard about keeping them virtual. because. For the first time, we've been able to Zoom in, um, folks from all regions of the world, and you can see everybody on the screen, and it enables, if you have a thoughtful leader, to start calling on people, to ask them for their points of view, whereas in a physical meeting, it's often dominated by one or two people, and it's sometimes difficult to want to get in and speak.
2: There are parts of the world obviously still difficult or impossible to travel to. You run a global business, you're investing in Asia. I hear you on bringing them in and making decisions, but a large part of your institutional shareholders are them looking you in the eye and saying, do I trust you with the capital of my pension or my government?
0: Yeah, I think incumbents have had a huge advantage because we've had relationships before. And so it's easy for them to then make decisions virtually in the sense that they know Carlisle. And they know me. They, they've met me and we've kept these relationships up uh, virtually. But no doubt it is being depleted and it's probably going to be incumbent on us to hit the ground pretty darn hard once things open up. And, you know, last year I spent a good part of the uh, late last year traveling to Asia, to the Middle East, to, to Europe to refresh those relationships and begin new relationships. It's very challenging. The flip side of this, Clark is that the velocity of fundraising has never been faster because a lot of the inefficiencies of data rooms and presentations in front of groups of people and the sequential steps required to get to a fundraise closing, a lot of that now has been rethought, repurposed and is done virtually. And as such, I think you could see potentially as the environment settles out, faster throughput and faster velocity because we will incorporate both the physical and the virtual, in terms of fundraising, managing LP relationships, and dealing with folks around the world.
2: We'll be right back with Q after a short break from Georgia Rankin, a managing director with Russell Reynolds Associates in London.
3: Like many industries, the pandemic has tested the private equity industry in new ways. While some portfolio company leaders were able to adapt and make the most of a volatile and uncertain period... Others stuck with existing strategies and struggled. So how does leadership style play into these successes and challenges? To find out, we analysed CEO leadership data to look at how well leaders perform and three themes stood out. First, portfolio company leaders tend to take a more disruptive approach to setting strategy, yet they are less likely to filter ideas for feasibility. Second, they're more likely to take risks without thinking about a backup plan if something goes wrong. Third, these leaders are less likely than other CEOs to empathise with employees, putting them at risk of losing key team members. What can PE firms do before they hire their next portfolio company leaders? Make value creation plans multi-dimensional to better prepare for an uncertain future. Appoint more agile leaders who can adapt their style quickly as needed. Provide leadership development support such as coaching to help leaders who are struggling to pivot. And finally, ensure that the team is effective. Build leadership balance with a mix of strengths across the C-suite to ensure readiness in a volatile environment. To learn more about what to look for in your next portfolio company CEO, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights.
2: And now, back to our chat with Q.
1: Q, given the very successful career that you've had, if you had the privilege of hindsight, What's the advice, Q, that you would give to your 25-year-old self? Or what's the advice that you would give to your daughter now?
0: I would say have a point of view. I see so many young people who can describe the issues or tell you about their analysis. But when you push them and say, well, what would you do? Mm -hmm. What ought we do with this difficult decision? Uh, Sometimes they don't have a point of view they they know how to describe something but they don't really have a formed thought as to what to do and what they would do mm-hmm. so first is have a point of view the second i would say is really need to have a tolerance for ambiguity yeah i think too many young people want to know well if i do this then will this happen and if i can get there then will i be able to get to that place and it's very very uh sequential and, and tracked and If certain things deviate or if they don't get the precise feedback that they want, they sometimes lose perspective or feel lost because you know, it's not clear. And and what I try to keep telling people is, hey, ambiguity is part of the game. You have to tolerate that ambiguity and have a certain confidence and a certain center of gravity, to my earlier point, uh, that enables you to keep pushing through because it's all about seeing the gray because the white and the black is so easy. It's yeah. all about seeing the gray, and you can't see the gray if you don't have a tolerance for, for ambiguity.
1: Yeah. I think linked to that, I would add resilience, right? It's when the shades of gray are there, don't give up. Keep going because the hard work you put in today will pay off. Maybe not next year, but in five or 10 years' time.
0: Absolutely. There are no shortcuts. Yeah. There are moments in time, there are moments in time when like the past five, 10 years, liquidity has made a lot of things easy. Well, I think we're in a new era now where, where it may not be as easy. There are no shortcuts. You know, you have to do the hard work. You have to be resilient to your good point, Lanaz. And, you know, you have to go with the flow a little bit and tolerate some ambiguity and, and, and keep going because it's never precise and it's never clearly going to be laid out. Related to that... I think the last thing I would tell people and one of the pieces of advice I always give our new associates is um, be a real person. So many of them are so career minded and just want to succeed and they're hungry and they want to work so hard. They forget that part of succeeding in business and, and, and in your career is also having a real personality and a real persona above and beyond work life to make you an interesting person. And so I keep giving the advice, be a real person. Uh, hard to do when when there's a lot of work, but I I try to get away, be with friends, and and go watch a show or go fly fish every once in a while.
2: You know, I agree 100%. We say to people, and it sounds ironic because we're pushing pushing to be successful to make clients happy, or you have to have great investments. But you know, actually, people need to take vacations. Oh yeah, people are better as a whole person when they are a whole person, and just working around the clock and trying to find the 25th hour. In fact, doesn't make you memorable, Mm -hmm. uh, and doesn't have you centered to either give advice or make a tough decision as an investor. Couldn't agree more. And we look for leaders. We want leaders who are whole people because they lead better because they're whole people. Couldn't agree more.
0: Absolutely. Which is why you know when I, I think that two three day vacations are hard for me because you can't really unplug. It's the two-week vacations yeah. where the first week you're starting to unplug, but then you get that last week of an ability to unplug, which is essential. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Clark. I think this velocity of businesses, the burnout rate of leaders, I think, is going to start to pick up. The pace that all mm. of us, you, me, everyone going at it is so high. And I think it's going to be even more critical to do exactly what you just said, which is to, to really unplug and reground yourself so that you can be... An effective leader when you're at work.
1: The European in me wholeheartedly agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was
2: wondering, Nanaz. She's like, okay, let's go to Europe on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: And in fact, let's make it a three-week holiday. Now, um, Q, thank you so much uh, for your time. We like to end each podcast with some rapid-fire questions. This is where Clark and I will give you a series of questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible. Are you ready?
0: Let's go for it.
1: Okay, question number one, what is your favorite hobby, if you had to just choose one?
0: Piano.
2: Q, what's your best morning ritual?
0: Sure, I do it every day. I make myself a nice black cup of coffee. I take it with my uh, laptop, and I check a bunch of different websites as I see the world wake up around me.
1: What is the one important skill that every person should have?
0: Balance. Balance.
1: Yeah, that center of gravity that you mentioned before Mm -hmm. really resonates.
0: What's your
2: favorite way to decompress from a single day of work?
0: Uh, That couch in my family room? (laughs) There's a reason why it's worn down a little bit. (laughs) I clump myself down there, uh, grab a remote control, and I zone out.
1: And where in the world would you live if money and work weren't an issue?
0: Oh, boy either Paris or Italy would be where I might
1: end up. One bit of advice that a client once gave me, which I now try to drill into my son's head, is make your money in the U.S. and go spend it in Europe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I I say to my kids, hard now, easy later.
1: Yes.
2: Yes. Thank you, Q, for being here. Fascinating, uh, the aspects of whether it's the investment world or the changing nature of how the world works. Just to summarize a little bit as for some of our listeners who are not as experienced in the private capital world, to improve companies. It's about performance. Perform as a management group and as investors. Equally, the industry itself probably needs to better communicate what they do in the short and the long term so that they understand the broader communities and what the outcome of a great company is positioned for the next five years, not for the day of closing. And changing cultures is hard, but as you said You may not love change, but obsolescence you'll like even less. So this need to evolve and to adapt really becomes the fabric of the institution itself. Think bigger, move faster, perform better. I think everyone will remember those points. Carlisle, think better, move faster, perform better. What a great mantra. At the same time, it's a judgment business and dealing with ambiguity, but then being decisive. This ability to handle uncertainty, but then make decisions. Secondly, don't lose your center of gravity when it comes to ethics or the current fad or the current what seems to be cool may not be the long term. And have courage, courage of conviction and understanding you have a conviction. It's not a false choice that you can perform well with an ESG mindset and that your diverse boards looking at 12% faster growth and earnings because the diversity of your boards reinforces that it's not a false choice. Well done. And lastly, just talking about ESG and the mindset, people tend to go, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? But you've asked, why are we doing it? Do it for the right reasons. And it will reinforce the what and the how to even greater success, this culture of inclusion to be authentic around the why. And last, just as a leader, to be that real person. You can be hungry and be ambitious and perform but make sure you've got a whole person there because that's what people relate to and will follow. Great leaders are whole people. So Q, we covered a whole lot today. Really, really, really impressive and thankful for you being here and uh, taking the time.
0: This is terrific, Danaz Clark. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiner's. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.